The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay, welcome back. Uh, I'm, sh I'm sure you're all dying to know the answer, so you all came, came back faster than usual. Uh, so how do we get from the first top motif score to the second one. And I'll show you, you know, just kind of to spice this up, I'll show you two different algorithms uh, that actually historically done uh, and the 100-fold improvement in speed and also in accuracy that comes from uh, the change. So the first way, and you're already, I can see, negatively predisposed to this, but if you look at uh, the motif, the winner, if you will, the first time around, it has certain base positions which are particularly uh, high information content. That is to say, they really dominate and they probably uh, are critical to finding a motif. If you had a way of, say, knocking out one of those uh, from the sequence, from all the sequences to which contributed to this motif, then it would greatly reduce your chances that you would find it again. And so, uh, that's what we're going to do in slide 47, is we're just going to go through and pick, pick on one of those bases and turn it, from, uh, a, uh, turn it into an X. And so an X doesn't really match any of the weight matrices, and so whenever you have a motif that overlaps it, it, uh, it, it won't have a good score, and so you won't build up, uh, you won't have this transition, the give sampler won't go in that direction. Now, this has a, a couple of disadvantages from a, from a uh, accuracy standpoint in that there may be some motifs that you really like that, uh, that land, that overlap the, the original motif slightly. Um, and you'll, 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 you'll miss those during this, this sampling. Um, so an alternative way of Looking, looking for these sort of things, rather than taking the best, the, the uh, uh, continuous sampling in this X'd out version, instead, what you can do is maintain a list of all the motifs you found up to this point. In this case, we have just one. And now, so we're using AlignAce to do this multi-sequence alignment uh, by sampling. Um, but now, as you're going along, building up Initially a, ran initially a random motif, uh, you compare it to the first winner. And you say, is this, ran this random motif, or this motif that's emerging out of this random process, does it look at all like the previous one? If it starts to look convincingly like the, the winner before, you know where it's going to go. It's just going to get more and more like that. So you might as well quit early. And so that's what you do, is now you haven't X'd out any particular base. All the information is there. You can take any kind of motif that expands, changes the columns, and so forth. And uh, if, you, if you're building up towards a motif you've seen before, you can, uh, you can reject it. This, uh, this, pro this, this process has the dual advantage of now allowing you to get overlapping motifs. Um, that might have a, a different enough column structure, a different enough weight matrix 
uh, or a slightly offset. So there really is a different motif. You can find those. Um, the algorithm that you're using to compare these we'll use a couple of times today. Uh, it's, we'll, we'll call it compares for comparing uh, these uh, consensus elements or these weight matrices. And uh, as you, so it has not only improves your ability to discriminate uh, related um, but statistically separable consensus elements, but it also has about a hundredfold increase in speed because you can stop 100 times earlier in this motif sampling, which goes, you know, once you lock into a motif, you go and you go until you really get the best possible score. Uh, but now you can reject these weaker ones earlier on. Now, you may have been wondering all along, you know, we probably have an intuitive feeling for what the map score is. But I'm going I'm to take, uh, and at the end of this, you're not going to, to be able to re-derive this from, from first principles, because I'm not going to go into that depth. But I want to expose you to some of the terms that are involved in this maximal posteriori score. Um, the, the, of course, the, the hero of any kind of uh, scoring function are, is the weight matrix, the actual number of counts of A, C's, G's, and T's you have at every position in, the, in, this col in every column in this matrix. Now remember, we've criticized and critiqued this already, that the typical weight matrices there is no codependence of columns the way there was in RNA secondary structure or in CPG islands or other uh, Markov chains. These are independent columns. So the, 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 the key player, the hero here, is F sub JB. This is the weight matrix. This is, the, and this is not a frequency, but this is the actual number of occurrences of each base, A, C, G, or T, which is B, at position J in the column matrix. Uh, these can be the active columns. Uh, J going, uh, and then the, the number of occurrences is just the sum of, the, uh, of those occurrences. Uh, we've already been talking about how the width of the motif uh, can include some columns that are basically on and off, columns that you believe are significant and those that aren't. So the number of columns C is less than or equal to the width. Um, so, for example, when we were doing the GCN4, uh, example, we had a width of 10, or might be at one point expand to the width of 11 with 10 active columns, C equal 10. Um, you'll recognize uh, here's the star, the F sub JD here, and you're adding these uh, pseudo counts here, these betas, which you remember that every time that you have a danger that you might have, because you have a limited database that you're looking through, a limited number of actually observed sites, you could get a number of sites equal to zero. And you don't want to have zeros in there because you have, you're basically acknowledging because I did limited sampling. It could have been one. If I had sampled one more, it could have been one. And so an estimate might be that you add another pseudo count. And this can be um, represented here. You don't want to have. And these gammas, you can think of, they're kind of like, they're uh, kind of like factorials where you're taking uh, and you're taking products. The pi is the product. Um, and then I may have mentioned that, that you might want to take into account the background levels of the bases. If you get, say, a motif that's just a string of A's, and you're doing it in a genome that's very AT-rich, uh, then you want to account 
it's less surprising if you found a string of A's in a genome that's GC-rich. And that's what this G sub B is, the background genome frequency for base B. Now, you, now in a double-stranded DNA, the uh, frequency of A's is going to be equal to the frequency of T's. But on a single-stranded RNA virus, for example, there's going to really be a very independent set of backgrounds for G's, A's, T's, and C's for use. Okay. So this gives you some flavor of for what's in the MAP score. A greatly oversimplified version of this detailed slide 49 is in slide 50. Uh, laughably oversimplified is it's basically the overrepresentation of these sites is what we're talking about. It means that these sites are you're, you're giving a higher score if there's an overrepresentation in that learning set. It tells you nothing about the rest of the genome. It could be they're overrepresented in the rest of the genome, too, and that's what we're going to go into next. But you get a bonus for the number of aligned sites and the overrepresentation of those sites. That's uh, what the MAP score is. The, back, the background is ignored in this oversimplification, but it's explicit in slide 49. It's, it's uh, you know, you, you really should ig ignore this uh, but the the, and think more about the previous one. But the main point that I'm making is the overrepresentation uh, is just half of the story. The other half is the specificity. In other words, if it's present in your learning set or your enriched set, you want to next ask, is it present in the rest of the genome? Because it's present, maybe that's what you mean by background. If it's present in the rest of the genome, then that's not um, great. And so what we're going to do is, uh, uh, this is an example of running through, after you get the first motif, running through lots of other motifs. So the, the best motif of all uh, for, for a, a larger set than the ones we were looking at, we were looking at seven, but there's 116 of these immunized plasmids. And when you run through the whole thing, the top map score, the one that's most overrepresented, is this A-rich one. Now you want to ask, is that specific to the amino acid biosynthetic genes, or is it found all over the place? And we're going to get to that, how you measure that, in just a moment. The one we were kind of highlighting here is GCN4, is kind of modestly, this is not a, a rank order list, it's kind of in random order. But we'll show how you can do the rank ordering as, or, as well, how you can order this. Okay, but you, but you see all kinds of motifs, some that are stretched out, um, different compositions. So, to evaluate motif significance, we have these five ex examples that we'll go through. Um, there's the specificity that I've been talking about, and it will be the subject of, this, of the next slide. That's what the little arrow means in slide 52 here. Group specificity, is this specific to the, gr the group that you found by clustering, or is it all over the place? Functional enrichment, we've talked about this a couple of times, is the are the genes that you're finding uh, in the cluster or the genes that you're finding that this motif in front of, are they enriched by some uh, fairly objective criteria? Is the motifs that you're finding in a particular position in the, in the upstream elements? Is it a particular position in the promoters or enhancers? Does the motif that you found have interesting symmetry properties as you might expect from proteins that bind at multimers? They might have inverted or tandem repeats uh, where, you know, where the elements either point towards each other or in tandem. Uh, 
is the motifs that you're finding, are they related in any way to motifs that were known before by more complicated biochemical and genetic assays? So the first one, the group specificity, in order to ask whether the motif you found in the small subset of the genome is present in the rest of the genome, we need a way of scanning. Now, when we introduced weight matrices uh, in the multi-sequence alignment lecture, and we say we would put off the motif give sampling until today, we already introduced one really trivial way of scanning the genome, where you basically take the weight matrix, move it in each position, you do a simple sum. That's basically what this is, is a simple sum, but uh, we're taking uh, log ratios of these counts. Again, the hero, the counts, just like the F sub uh, BJ before, now it's N sub LB, slightly different nomenclature taken from different articles, but it's the same idea. This is a number of occurrences of base B at position L. Uh, this is the weight matrix as counts, not as frequencies. And in the denominator is the, is, the, is the number of occurrences of the most common base. Now this could be B or it could be some other one, but this is the most common one. This is going to tend to be larger than or equal to the N sub LB, which is the weight matrix. And you're going to sum over uh, L over the length of the binding site. This was uh, W uh, in the previous one. And you're going to just scan this along the entire genome, stepping it over one base at a time and coming back on the opposite strand. And that's going to be scanase. So you've got alignase compared to scanase. Now we're going to scan it to see for specificity. Again, you've got these 0.5s. You can think of these as pseudo counts. Keep the zeros out. You don't want to have a logarithm of zero. Now let's walk this through a particular bi biological data set. This is a cell cycle data set uh, going through two, two cycles of this, uh, cell division cycles. Here, there are time points, 15 significant time points along the horizontal axis. And this is a particular cluster out of 30 different clusters this particular one has a peak just before the S phase, the phase in the cell cycle, where you're trying to get uh, the replication of the cell. Uh, at the S phase is where you actually synthesize a new uh, set of uh, DNA molecules. You duplicate it, just as we talked about in the first lecture. Um, and naturally, since you've recorded a time series through two cell division cycles, you expect there to be periodicity or genes that are required in the first S phase, you expect them to be required in the second S phase. That's the, that's the uh, underlying thought behind designing this experiment, is you would synchronize all the cells. Normally cells are all over the place. Some of them are in S, some of them are in M, which is where the metaphase chromosomes separate. Um, but in this, you synchronize them all up, a method we'll talk about in just a moment. And then this is that, that diagram where we have the number of standard deviations from the mean. This is the normalized uh, signal of the RNA expression on the vertical axis and horizontal axis is this time series. Categorically described as G1, GAP1, synthesis, GAP2, metaphase, mitosis, and so on. Now, what do we learn from this particular cluster? This cluster has 106, 186 genes in it. That means the RNAs for those 186 genes were in, in a nice envelope. It doesn't mean that there strictly couldn't be 185, 187. There may some, be some outliers on the edges. But that's the number that we're going to be doing these calculations for. Uh, the, uh, the 
the ways we're going to evaluate it is first whether the functional categories make sense. Is there an enrichment for a particular functional category? You may have already, those biologists among you may have already had a hypothesis of what functional categories should be enriched. Is this going to peak? If these are the RNAs going to peak just before S stage, just before you need them for DNA synthesis, maybe these can encode genes are involved, gene products involved in DNA synthesis. Sure enough, that's the most striking uh, observation is that the, the, in this database, this MIPS database of functional categories, you have 82 genes that are described as involved in DNA synthesis. And of, the, of this cluster that are co-expressed at peak at S, you have an overlap of 23 with that. And, and that may not sound like a huge overlap to you, but it's very statistically significant. It's 10 to the minus 16th is a probability of that occurring at random out of the 6,000 or so yeast genes, having this overlap of 23 is very significant. So that's the first, that's, and, and we'll just a moment show how we did that calculation. But that's your first test. There is a functional category enrichment. Next, you find the motifs. You use the linease, you go through, you find the top motif, it's MCB. You go and you find the very close second highest motif, it's SCB. These are not ch chosen by hand, this is all done Algorithmically, the only input, there's no literature input except for checking the, these uh, functional categories. For the finding the motifs, it's just the uh, microarray data and the sequence upstream from the genes that come out of this cluster. That, these, that's how these were found. Now, they happen to have names, MCB and SCB. We could have just called them X and Y, but uh, these names do mean that the comparison score to something that was in the literature is good, but the very profound uh, accomplishment of this is that now, unlike the literature where it's rather challenging to find uh, the connection from a conclusion like this motif is likely to regulate this gene and likely to be enriched in this class of genes, here it's directly traceable. You can see the logic that connects this motif MCB to this cluster via Gibbs algorithm, and this cluster <coughs> is traceable back to the RNA profiles on the microarray. This is all a very simple, um, comprehensive study. But now you want to ask, is this motif, we know that it's, it, that it's got a high MAP score, it's highly enriched, it's, it's highly unlikely that this mot a motif this strong would have occurred in this um, size cluster of genes. But what you want to ask, is it specific? This is a thing we've been putting off for a little while. Is it specific? And if you look at the 30 clusters, when you cluster this whole set of genes that vary during the cell cycle into 30 uh, envelopes, this particular one, envelope number two, cluster number two, um, which, which is dis displayed in the upper left, um, down in the lower left, you can see that all the MCB motifs, almost all of them, are found in cluster two when you use scanase, and very few of them are found in the rest of the genome. Similarly, for the second most uh, impressive motif by Alinus map score is SCB, and it's also specific to cluster 2. The fact that you're seeing this non-random enrichment for functional category, this non-random enrichment for a, a, a motif, this non-random specificity of that motif and a second motif kind of tells you that everything's working that your RNA data collection is working, which, you know, you may spend a lot of money to get to this point. You should be so gratified that 
and the clustering is working, and the motif finding and specificity scores, all this is working. It doesn't mean that it's absolutely perfectly tuned and everything, but it's, it's giving you feedback that you're taking a step in the right direction. Similarly, the position of this motif in the promoter is non-random. You see this little spike that's coming up just before the, it could be the transcription or translation start. In this case, the ATG is the translation start, and it's non-random. How do we measure each of these things? How do we get this? Well, before we get that, I'll give you two more examples. Same format, just to show you that you, you get different motifs when you go to different clusters. Two more clusters. Uh, the next one is also periodic. It is, uh, has a peak now, uh, slightly shifted to the right from the previous periodic function, and it repeats it at exactly the same periodicity as if they're part of the same uh, periodic function, which is exactly how the experiment was designed. The difference between this and the previous one is now that the two top motifs are not previously known motifs. doesn't mean they're any worse, but they're, they're new ones. Um, and the way you evaluate whether they're, they're specific is the same way we got the specificity core. Now they're, now they're in cluster 14, which is this cluster up in the upper left. And both of them are, are pretty about as specific as the, as the ones in the previous slide. The functional category is not as pr impressive. Um, it's 10 to the minus 6 instead of, uh, sorry, 10 to the minus 4. No, 10 to the minus 6. Uh, the previous one was 10 to the minus 16. Um, now, th this, this is still uh, statistically significant, uh, but it could mean that this particular way of functional categorization, which the curators use, may not be ideal for this particular regulatory mechanism, regulatory opera, uh, regulon. Okay. So this may be a discovery both of a new regulatory uh, set and of two new motifs. But this, in order to establish that, you'd need some experiments to really, say, knock out these motifs and see what the consequences are. Now the third cluster illustrates yet another set of ideas. Here, be, even though the experiment was designed specifically to enrich for the most abundant, oh, sorry, for the most periodic uh, gene expression, there were inevitably features of the experimental design which were not periodic. In particular, when you synchronize the cells, you force them all to be in synchrony for the cell division cycle, you did that by taking a temperature-sensitive mutant in the cell division cycle, uh, say CDC 15 or 28. And that temperature-sensitive uh, mutant, that requires that you raise the temperature to shut down the function of that gene, by unfolding the protein. And, that, and so you have a temperature shift to allow them to go back into the cell cycle. So you're going from high temperature to low. That's one thing. And so that temperature essentially decays rapidly. And then you have, a, and then you have sort of the, the, the residual of that going out in time. In addition, there's all the physiological effects. You had all these things kind of waiting in this funny physiological state. And then that decays with time. So that's not cyclic. That perturbation is... Uh, is uh, uh, sort of linear or decay. And sure enough, you find examples of clusters which are not periodic. This one peaks sort of in the second cell cycle, but not in the corresponding point of the first cell cycle. And in fact, most of the, of the 30 clusters, when you divide this up into 30, the entire expression space up into 30, are like this. They're not periodic. 
But that's okay because what you're looking for is clustering, as if these were different conditions or different time points. It doesn't matter. What it is is they are co-expressed. They're going up and down together, possibly due during serendipitous factors. But you can still apply, apply the same criteria for asking whether you're impressed with this cluster or not. Does it have uh, enrichment for a functional category in the upper left-hand part of 556? And wow, it really does. This is the most impressive one of all 30 clusters. It has a probability of 10 to the minus 54 that you would find this degree of overlap between the functional category. Think of this as a Venn diagram of overlapping um, circles. The overlap between the class of ribosomal proteins and the class of this particular cluster, which is not periodic, is, is amazingly significant. In addition, you find two motifs. The top two motifs are highly enriched. That's what uh, the, um, the Schneider inform information content logo means. And it's highly specific. That's what the bottom line means, is that it's present in cluster one and very little in any of the other clusters by, by scanase uh, using the, the, the motif matrix. Okay, so these are three clusters, each is a different story. The first one was two known motifs, the second was two unknown motifs, and a new, possibly a new functional category. The third one is a whopping match to a functional category, one known, one unknown motif, and the whole thing non-periodic, even though the experimental design is periodic. So now we're going to, we've, we've shown that you can quantitate all these things that are often uh, casually treated in the discussion section of biological papers. Here they've all been treated quantitatively. But how did we do that? What is the algorithm behind each of these things? Uh, we won't talk about how we measure periodicity, but you can imagine uh, you can measure uh, periodicity, and we have. Uh, you can ask specificity. Uh, how did we measure the specificity and the functional assignments? Turns out that's almost the same statistical function we use for those two things. Functional assignments, group specificity. Positional bias is a different one. And uh, comparis we can use not only for looking for previous motifs, um, as we did in the Alinase algorithm itself, and as we do as we want to look through databases of motifs, we can also look as the motif looks symmetry on itself. So this is how we do each of these. Uh, we have a choice of uh, when we ask whether the intersection of two subsets of all of the possible genes, let's say our cluster, and a functional category or a cluster and all the, the best hits with scanase, if those overlap in a significant way, we can, we can think of that as sampling from a population. The question is, are we sampling with replacement or without replacement? It's an easy thing to get confused about, and I urge you to just kind of look back at the definitions of these offline. But uh, there actually was uh, a mistake was made in the literature um, by an author who should have known better because he got it right the first time and wrong the second time. Uh, but the, uh, the correct use, and in fact, in widespread use, is, is the hypergeometric because we are actually here sampling without replacement. When you do that, the two sets, the two subsets of the, of the big set, the big set is N, and the two subsets are S1 and S2, you have these, these combinatoric, uh, the simple combinatoric. We have S1 choose X, where X is the intersection, between the two sets, and this will be this will be much clearer in the next slide, where we have a kind of a diagram to go with it. But this is the, the chance of getting exactly x. And in the next slide, we're going to show how we need to consider uh, 
the possibility that it could be x or larger. Now, so this is the diagram. N is the total number of genes in yeast, about you know somewhere upwards of 6,000. And then the subset 1 might be the number of genes in the cluster that you got out of your microarray experiment. And S2 is the number of genes found in the functional category. This is the MIPS database. How surprised are we that we found X as the intersection between those two sets? Well, let's say X were 1, and the two sets were about 100 each. That's not too surprising, right? Um, but that hypergeometric formula, if you plug in 1, it's very surprising. You got exactly 1, okay? But the reason is, is because uh, it could have been bigger than, you know, you know we're, we're, we're saying that it's significant that they overlap that much. Well, if it's one, it has, we have to consider one or greater because we're basically uh, saying it could be one or greater. And so that what you have to do is do a sum from uh, one up. And what you'll find is that that's, uh, you know, very likely, not surprising. On the, on the other hand, if we had uh, a, a, a very significant overlap of these, between these two, then the hypothesis that you have that these two are very related, in other words, that you've got an enrichment, that your cluster is enriched for this functional category because you know, you've got, say, 100 in S1 and 100 in S2, and the overlap is 99, then you would have been surprised by 99, and you would have been surprised by 100. But both 99 and 100 together are still uh, very rare, and so you're surprised. Okay? And so the sum uh, has to go from whatever you've got on up, and that's what this is. And that's easy to, to forget, too. People may, might just say, oh, this particular intersection is surprising. So you have to have that sum. And uh, now, I'm going to go from slide 59 to 60, and there's going to be relatively, graphically, very little difference, but it's a radically different uh, thing that we're doing. Now we're doing group specificity score. This is the, the motif you found in the, in the cluster S1, you, you look through S1, you found, the lineage found you a motif, now you want to ask whether that's specific or not. So you search through the entire genome, you take top 100 matches, and those are upstream of the genes in S2, subset sub 2. If there's a huge overlap of S1 and S2, we'll call X, then you're going to be surprised. And so again, you take the sum over this hypergeometric distribution, and if that's a small number, small probability, then that's a measure of how surprised you are. Okay, so if that's uh, you know ten to the minus six, then you're very surprised. Now those were hypergeometric, but positional bias now it is binomial. Okay, and you should be able to rec remember the binomial is this combinatoric term um, where t is the total number of sites and uh, I is the the amount the, 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 the amount that you're surprised. So M is uh, the number of sites that are in the most enriched window. Now you can take a window any size you want. If you make it too small, you're going to get sampling statistics. If you make it too big, it'll it'll include the entire 600 base pair non-coding region. So so you can try a bunch of you can try different windows, but basically uh, what you're lo looking for is that how surprised you are that uh, that uh, you have m or more sites in that window. If you're surprised by you know, 10 sites, 
then you'd be even more surprised by more than 10, so you have to take the sum. So it's a sum, just like the previous hypergeometric ones, but now it's over a binomial. And remember the binomial is this combinatoric term, a probability to the i power, and one minus that probability to the total minus i power. So this should be very recognizable. That, this is the chance that you have enrichment in a particular part of the promoter. Now, if we can compare motifs, uh, this, we've mentioned this already. Uh, we use it in the Alignic algorithm itself to cut, cut uh, our losses when we start going refining the same uh, motif again. We've used it to find uh, whether we're similar motifs. And through experience um, and training sets, and you, can, you can find that just kind of like a correlation coefficient, the compare score is, uh, uh, as it gets closer to 1, is more and more believable. And about 0.7 is where you get statistically significant um, matches to other motifs. And here's an example where you can actually treat the distances to other motifs of similarity to other motifs where one is perfectly similar as you get along the diagonal. Any motif is, is similar to itself as, um, by definition. And you can, you can build up a little matrix of, of similarities of motifs, and then you can do hierarchical clustering on the motifs, and, you can, and if, if A and B are sufficiently close together, then you might consider that they're the same motif or their or they're transcription factors that, where the, the transcription factor that binds to that DNA motif may be uh, related to the protein sequence level. These are predictions that you might make from this kind of clustering based on comparing weight matrices. Now, if you compare a motif to itself, what does that mean? Uh, if you just compare it to itself over its in, uh, in entirety in the same orientation, that's what the previous one, you'll get a, you'll get a uh, compare score of 1. However, if you flip it, remember DNA being double-stranded, unlike proteins, when you flip it and compare the weight matrices, uh, now you're asking whether it has two-fold symmetry. And this is another very profound connection, I think, between the weight matrices, which are kind of a a summary of a, an alignment of many sequences of sort of evolutionary significance or of, in this case, regulatory significance, but it's a weight matrix of aligned sequence. That is actually directly related, um, conceptually related, to a very different uh, thought, which is that the three-dimensional structure of the protein-nucleic acid interaction has some symmetry in it. Um, the protein, if you have a protein dimer or a, pro or a protein domain that's duplicated, uh, if you have a self-symmetry to a reverse complement of a motif, that means in three-dimensional structure, the protein, uh, the two protein motifs are uh, re related by a dyad symmetry. That means a two-fold axis where you rotate 180 degrees in three dimensions. On the other hand, if the, if the element if the halves of the element are, or thirds of the element are related by a direct translation in the, in the motif space, in the multi-sequence alignment, then that uh, means that you have a direct repeat of DNA-protein interactions where the, heli the helical translation and rotation of the axis is reflected in the protein DNA. So anyway, there's a connection between motif matrices and three-dimensional structures. And here's how it plays out when you do a compare race, where you actually go and you compare column by column the weight matrices of motif one with itself in reverse complement. And you can see these three, uh, pure R, 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 and CRIP, taken from uh, bacterial genomes, are very 
significant when you compare it to its reverse complement. That means that very likely there's a protein dimer or, uh, or maybe a closely sequenced related heterodimer which binds 180 degrees uh, symmetry. On the other hand, here, when you comp compare CPXR to itself reverse complemented, very poor alignase score. It means it doesn't have this dyad symmetry. Uh, however, if you took the two halves and compared them, uh, I don't show it, but no doubt you would get a very um, strong alignase covariance score between the two halves, indicating a direct repeat in sequence space and a sort of a helical repeat in three-dimensional structure space. I think this is a very powerful connection between these two. And that, of course, can be quantitated. Now let's, now we want to say behind the scenes all along you've had to have you've had to have some confidence in what the alignase scores meant um, and you do this by doing a test set a test set has to be composed of negative controls and positive controls and a very large set of functional categories um, from which we've shown a few examples uh, in the context of negative controls and positive controls negative controls um, can be randomly selected genes you want to try different different cluster sizes to see the effect of cluster size on the whole algorithm. You might be able to predict this completely theoretically, but it's gra very gratifying, whether you can or can't, to run it through the exactly the same algorithm, the same software, um, with randomly selected sets. Now this is very expensive because you can generate, a you need to generate a lot more randomly selected sets than the, than the actual uh, test sets. And then for positive controls, there are actually relatively few of these. These are cases where you have really well-defined prescription factors which have to have the additional fact that they have five or more known sites because if you have you need to have five or more sites in order for a linease to get a grip on the on the problem and produce a nice multi-sequence alignment okay so let's go through first the results of the functional categories 248 functional categories from these different databases and then go through the negative and positive controls so here are some of the friends that we found, we happen to find. Now this is all done from functional categories. This was not done from microarrays. But here are some of the friends that we found in the cell cycle microarray data. RAF1 was the ribosomal one, GCN4 uh, we've seen before, and uh, MCB was uh, the one that was in the S phase. Now, and you can see these have been ranked Remember, so you could rank them by three different methods, by the MAP score, which is the unlikeliness of finding uh, this good an information content motif in the learning set. It doesn't tell you about specificity. That's the, that's the next column to the right. There's MAP, the specificity score, which means that it's present in that functional category and not in lots of other parts of the genome. And then position of the bot, and then remember that was done by the intersecting uh, Venn diagram hypergeometric. And then the positional bias, that was the binomial, um, is how non-randomly positioned is it in uh, the uh, promoters. And so this is ranked by the specificity, and you can see RAP1 is very specific um, to that uh, particular functional category. Now let's rank them by positional bias. You get a very different story. The ones that were on the top of the previous one are off the chart here. MCB just barely makes it as number 14. And this A-rich sequence logo, which you might think is something that, that uh, uh, is all over the place, and in fact it is. It has a pretty poor specificity score, has a high map score. Its positional bias is astronomical. It is found in a particular place in, in many promoters throughout the genome. 
So this is uh, this is the way that you quantitate each of these these three things: the uh, non-randomness in a learning set, the specificity for that set, and the positional bias within promoters in general. So what are the negative controls here? Uh, clusters of size 20, 40, 60, 80, and 100 open reading frames, meaning genes uh, for, our, for which you might have uh, functional categories. And uh, this allows you to calibrate the false positive rates. And what you do is you're looking for, we could use any criteria here. We said that a MAP score might on average be zero if it's random, but if we go up above 10, we'll get uh, a, a higher enrichment specificity score of 10 to the minus 5 or lower, meaning. Uh, and then we apply these two criteria to the functional categories and to the random controls, and the functional categories is gratifyingly <coughs> higher than the random controls. And so we can say that about half of the functional category runs are likely to be real motifs. Of these, about half of those are known, and so the rest are, uh, are, not, are probably uh, new discovered motifs and new discovered uh, reg regulons, regulatory connected genes. Now the positive controls, as I said, are harder to come by. There are 29 transcription factors. These are in, you know, incompletely curated. One of the, b the boons that will come from this sort of systematic analysis of microarray data and functional categories will be a lot of new positive controls, but, but until we get them, we can't use them. So, so this, is what we, this is what one can use right now. And in 21 out of 29 cases, an appropriate motif, meaning some, you have to basically rerun a linase because you can't really use the weight matrices from the literature. They were derived by a slightly different method. But you can use those to prime a linase. It's a trivial thing for a linase to now derive a, a, a weight matrix. And then you compare it to weight matrices that come out of, um, of the, uh, the test. And 21 out of 29 work. And of the, of the uh, eight, the difference between these two is eight, and of those eight, five were actually an appropriate functional category. So you can, depending on how you interpret these two facts, you can say the false negative rate is 10 to 30%. Um, not great, but neither the, neither the positive control set nor the algorithm are, are perfect here. Now, where do we go from here? We have, uh, we need to both generalize and to reduce the assumptions we want to, so that we can discover uh, new things. So, for example, one of the assumptions we've been making is that motifs act in isolation. We've been discovering motifs one at a time. We'll find the best one, we'll, we'll cross it off our list, or we'll, we'll filter out subsequent ones, we'll find all the rest. But what may really be statistically significant, and we may be missing by looking at it one at a time, is motif interactions. And Sahi Tilpel and co-workers have, uh, have pursued this with a vengeance, uh, and I think this is a very exciting uh, direction this can go, um, is what proteins, uh, uh, how two or three or more motifs can interact to produce uh, uh, co-regulation. Then which, we have these DNA motifs that come out of this microarray data, but what's binding to it? Finding that, how do we find that connection? Well, one way of many is in vivo cross-linking. There are also so-called one-hybrid acids and so forth. But just think of this conceptually as you're catching it in the act, you grab it, and then you do proteomics 
um, to find which proteins are connected to which nucleic acids. And the final direction this, this might be going is we've said that the, column, the different columns of the weight matrices are independent. And we've already seen multiple examples in the past, in fact, I emphasize them uh, on purpose, where the, weight, the columns are not independent in RNA secondary structure, in CPGs, and so forth. And there's, there's some evidence from this paper that, that, uh, that the interdependence between columns might be something that you can question. So in summary, we've uh, talked mainly about clustering and then where you go to check that your clusters are biologically significant, whether you've made discoveries and know the limits of your discoveries. What are the false positive and false negative rates? How do you measure the specificity of your motifs? How do you measure the functional uh, enrichment? Um, things that are casual in, in the, the classic literature. Okay, so um, I look forward to seeing you uh, next week. Thank you.